0: Hey everyone, I want to thank you for joining me for episode 31 of the Mark Guy Show. Uh, it's December 19th, 2016, and I've got several things to talk about today. I apologize, it has been about a week since I did my last episode. I was traveling a lot over the weekend, had a busy weekend overall, uh, but hopefully should be able to get, obviously this one out today, and then I'm hoping one before I have to travel over this next weekend and there's plenty to talk about i'm not going to be able to pack in everything that i'd like to discuss into this episode first what i want to talk about is just an update on india's war on cash so i talked about that in a prior episode and how i said this could be the framework for very similar wars on cash elsewhere we're seeing the same playbook being carried out In Europe, they're floating these ideas to the public. Uh, You see a lot of intellectuals that are supporting at least limits on cash, much like India did. They took some of their largest bills out of circulation, basically, so it forced people that held these bills to bring them into the banking system to open up bank accounts if they didn't previously have bank accounts and brought all of this cash either out of the system or if somebody didn't want uh, want to open a bank account, they're sitting on this now essentially worthless money unless they go forward and bring it into the banking system. Uh, So this kind of playbook is very realistic to be carried out elsewhere. I mean you already saw the US in the past stop all bills from being printed besides $100 bills and lower Uh, and this was done in the name of fighting drug trafficking and all of that but you could easily see the same rationale being used to take out the $100 bill, take out the $50 bill um, and that's the the whole discussion on the war on cash, I forget what episode it was uh, where I discussed kind of these proposals being floated. One of those big proposals is to outlaw any bills larger than $10. So to force most large purchases, any sort of, any sort of large transfers of cash to be done through the banking system. That's at least the idea behind it. That's what, these people would like to happen, they of course poo-poo the idea that people will turn to Bitcoin, will turn to other currencies, will find alternatives if they want to commit crimes, if they want to do things outside kind of the the realm of being able to be monitored and recorded. They will figure out a way to do that. Uh, but they kind of poo-poo that notion and think that people will just now come into the regular banking system, uh, which I don't think will happen. But India's war on cash has had... A lot of negative consequences. I'm not going to go into it any further uh, because you can go back and listen to that prior episode. I will link to both of those prior episodes in my suggested readings, referenced articles portion on the website. Uh, but a new interview came out and it is with Giant Bendari. I believe I'm saying his name correctly. And he's an institutional invest uh, investing consultant that works in Singapore. He's from India and he's been following the story from the beginning and He had some very interesting things to say about where this war on cash is going in India. So I wanted to give an update. He warns, quote, there are clear signs that in a very convoluted way, possession of gold for investment purposes will be made illegal in India, end quote. Uh, In a recent notification, the government has made it clear that any ownership of jewelry above 500 grams of gold per married woman will be put under the microscopic scrutiny of tax authorities. So basically, if the source of gold can't be proven so if you can't tell them why are you holding more than 500 grams of gold per married woman uh it'll be taxed heavily and basically taxed to the point where gold ownership on any sort of substantial level will be very difficult to do and essentially made illegal it kind of reminded me of when when marijuana was first made illegal in the united states such an onerous tax was placed on it that People couldn't hold it. People couldn't conceivably buy it because it, w- it was so expensive. And then at the end of the day, it ended up resulting in it being illegal in the entire country. Uh, and this very well could happen. So what I was just talking about with Bitcoin and people finding alternatives, one of the best historic alternatives to currencies minted by governments or currencies minted by anyone have been gold. You know, Gold is... Relatively held its value over time. Certainly, compared to fiat currencies over time, uh, gold has always had value. Will always continue to have value unless human history greatly changes. But because gold is a competitor to cash and is now a competitor to the banking system in India, and now that cash has been taken away, if people want to, you know, hold their hold their money under their mattress to use. That term, if if people want to actually hold currency, gold now is the better way to do it. You can hold it in a far smaller area than you could hold cash, uh, especially when larger notes have been taken away from you, and and you no longer can hold those and have them have any value. Uh, so taking now the steps to make gold essentially illegal, or at least significant ownership of gold illegal, is part of the playbook. And so this would be something to watch. If a war on cash ever does happen, gold becomes a target because gold is always a competitor for fiat currencies. And the easier it's made to hold cash, probably the less likely people are to want or need to hold gold. Not that there aren't a ton of people that see utility in holding gold, but when that ability to stock up on, I'm using a US example, but $100 bills to have somewhere in your house that you're able to hide and have that ready source of cash, if that's taken away, now you've got to hold 10 times as many bills, you've got to hold a bunch of $10 bills somewhere, it takes up a lot more space and now it's easier at that point to purchase gold and to hold gold bars. So if the government doesn't want you doing that and sees that as a as a source of illegal activity or sees that as a, as a competitor to what they want you to do, what they're trying to engineer you to do, then they're going to take steps to make gold illegal or make it at least onerous to hold. So that was the important development out of India. It was an interesting interview. I will post a link to that. Uh, Another big story, and I'm not going to talk about this a ton because it was expected, and I don't think I have a ton of unique analysis to offer here, but the Federal Reserve decided, again, just like last December, to raise interest rates another 25 basis points. So they raised their federal funds rate target from 25 to 50 basis points to... 50 to 75 basis points so they, they did 125 basis point uh raise last year 125 basis point raise this year and that was after coming into this year saying that they expected four interest rate uh hikes in 2016 which i said at the time was ridiculous and that it was not going to happen there was no way that they could get away with four hikes this year, and it turned out to be only one and just one measly 25 basis point hike, which was basically, I think, this, the smallest hike they could get away with. And it was, once again, kind of necessary for them to do it, politically necessary for them to do it. I think it was the perfect time for them to do it. Interest rates had started to, to rise on the long end of the yield curve. And if they hadn't raised with that happening and with the stock market going crazy with this post-Trump run-up. If they didn't raise now, you know when would they ever raise? Because they want to say that we don't look at the stock market, You know we don't look at what the markets are doing, but of course they do. That's the way that so many people gauge the health of the U.S. economy and they want to have some cover when they raise interest rates that the market's not going to tank. And this recent run-up gave them a lot of room there where they could they could raise rates without really being scared if if there was a temporary dip, it maybe would come down to levels that we saw in early to mid November, you know, rather than erasing all gains for the year or something like that, where if if this hadn't happened over the last month, month and a half, then maybe they would have been less likely to raise. But really all the stars aligned for them here and it was the perfect opportunity for them to raise but I think we also do need to look at this in historical context or look at where the Fed Funds rate target is, 50 to 75 basis points, and that is still historically low. So we are nowhere close to being out of the woods. There is, there is so much room for interest rates to rise, and we are still nowhere near healthy levels. So I think what's, in, what's more important to talk about than this one hike is their projection that they're going to raise rates three separate times next year. And I think this also is not going to happen. I'm going to make the same prediction I made last year when they said that they were going to raise rates four times and it was not going to happen in 2016. And if anything, it was going to be closer to zero than it was to four. I mean, it was closer to zero than it was to four. Uh, So I don't think they're going to be able to raise rates three times. What you see is you see mortgage rates already rising uh, and – Mortgage rates, when you look at how people how people look at if they can afford a house, most people look at it as, as what is the payment that I can afford when I buy this house. And so interest rates play a huge role. Rising interest rates mean people can afford less house than they could before because their payment for the same value of a mortgage when interest rates are higher is more than when interest rates are lower. So mortgage rates are already rising. And yeah... There's, yeah, the Fed doesn't have complete control over mortgage rates. So you kind of saw that leading up to this. Rates are already rising. Treasuries were already rising, despite the Fed not moving the Fed funds rate target. So they don't control interest rates entirely. They do exert a substantial influence over them. But if you take, if this trend continues and they hike the Fed funds rate three separate times in 2017, where will mortgage rates be by the end of of 2017? I mean, right now they're at four and a half percent, four to four and a half percent in that range. Will they be at at five and a half percent, maybe closer to six percent? I don't really know where they would be at that point in time, but you could see a flattening in the U.S. housing market that really could could strap a lot of people because once again, coming out of the housing bubble, housing prices have run up again and people have had more confidence because the, the value of their houses, ha, the value has risen since coming out of that bubble. And now if you take that away because if prices are leveling off or falling due to rising interest rates because there isn't the same demand out there because people can't afford the same amount of house that they could previously, people don't have the same ability to pay that they did previously because their monthly payment will not get them as large of a mortgage, then you will see some pain. And if you take that in concert with what I'm about to talk about here, that the stock market is in a real bubble, and I think every indicator is pointing in that direction, that this post-Trump run-up is not sustainable. Uh, so if you take f- leveling off or falling housing prices in concert with falling markets and people losing in their, you know, in their retirement funds or whatever assets in the stock market they hold. Uh, I think you'll see consumer confidence start to fall off a cliff. People are feeling good right now. Their housing values are going up. Their, their retirement account balances are going up. Uh, they can borrow money very cheaply. I mean, that's part of the the bubble-inducing low interest rates. That's kind of what they do, and that's why they cause malinvestments due to that effect. But when all these things happen, as interest rates rise, you are going to see... Some pain. You're going to see some reallocation. I mean, you have to when you've been in in this type of bubble for nearly 10 years. I mean, really, the bubble goes back. You can trace it back 15 plus years, and how we've never really come out of it. You know, the dot com bubble burst, but then what did we do? We ran up a housing bubble in its place. That burst, and now this uh, this stock bubble, and you can point at a bond bubble too. Have come up in its wake. So, you, I mean, you can trace it back that we've been in a bubble for 15 to 20 years, but this zero interest rate post-recession induced bubble, you can trace back about eight, eight years, give or take. Uh, it's going to be interesting. And we're finally starting to see this tightening happening. And I think we will see some tightening next year. I just would be shocked if they're able to do three separate rate hikes, because you're not going to see the market keep doing this. I think they're looking at it through this lens that the that the market's going to continue to go up, that they're going to continue to have this cover where they can raise rates. And even if there is a temporary hit on the markets, because there've been so many gains recently, it doesn't really matter or it's much more palatable for people. But if you have stagnating markets, which we saw at the beginning of this year, you saw the huge crash to start. And really, I mean, the markets were, were, were fairly volatile for a while, and they came back, obviously, from that initial drop to start the year after the Fed raised interest rates in December of 2015. Uh, you're going to see more of that. It's not going to be this continued run-up like we've seen in the last month and a half. And I think when the Fed says they're going to raise rates three times, they're thinking very short-term, and they're thinking of how things are now. But that's not going to be how things are in twenty seventeen. And one big piece of evidence that I wanted to discuss on this episode uh, was uh, this article that I read, or this report that I read from TrimTabs Investment Research. And this was; th- these numbers are pretty shocking. So I figured I would I would share it with you. And this is one piece of evidence among many that. This market is heavily overvalued and we should be wary. So basically what this report says is inflow into U.S. exchange-traded funds since election day is equal to over 6% of the fund's total assets. So in just over a month, more than 6% of the total assets of U.S. exchange-traded funds have flowed in, net inflows. And through the first half of December, inflows had already reached uh, $43.4 billion on pace to surpass the record of $50.7 billion, which was just set in November. And another important point is that buying has been consistently heavy. So there have only been three days with net outflows uh, in that time period, in the last about five weeks, from November 8th to December 15th. Uh, and their CEO... David Sanchi, Trim Tab's CEO, he said, quote, the stampede into U.S. equity ETFs since the election has been nothing short of breathtaking. The inflow since election day is equal to one and a half times the inflow of $61.5 billion in all of last year. One has to wonder who's left to buy. It's that last part. One has to wonder who's left to buy. And you know what happens when you run out of buyers? That run up in prices stops. And oftentimes prices will fall. Another quote taken out of this. ETF flows tend to be a good contrary indicator when they become extreme, so the buying frenzy does not bode well for U.S. equities. The market also could get a nasty jolt in January when investors who have been postponing stock sales this year in anticipation of lower tax rates next year start to sell. So this heavy, this heavy, these huge inflows into U.S. equity ETFs has tended to be a contrary indicator, indicating that in the future, in the, in the near future, prices are going to fall. And I think that's going to be what has to happen. You know, the stock market was overvalued, in my opinion and in the opinion of many, before Donald Trump was elected. And then you've had a dramatic run-up in prices since then. So there's not really any anywhere for this to go over the medium term than down. You know, maybe this run-up continues into the new year, Who knows how long, how long it can go. It's already gone longer than I could have possibly expected, but it is going to end at some point. And all of these indicators talking about interest rates rising. And if, if that trend continues, that hurts the stock market that impacts stock valuations. Um, If you look at this indicator, if you look at where PE ratios are compared to history, you can look at a, a number of different things that tell you that that this market is overvalued. So I don't want to keep beating a dead horse there, but uh, I thought that was something important to talk about. Obviously, I had to talk about the Fed, the Fed raising rates because I've talked quite a bit of quite a bit about the Fed. I haven't talked as much about them recently just because everybody assumed that they were going to raise rates here. So. There wasn't really any sort of contrary analysis that I could give, whereas in past meetings where where people have said, yes, they're going to raise in this meeting, they're going to raise in July, I could have said, I don't think they're going to be able to raise in July because of da-da-da-da-da, but I had said from the beginning that December made sense, it was after the election, Uh, it would have been shocking for them to do anything right before the election this made perfect sense. Then when you add what the what the markets have done into the mix and what the long end of the yield curve has done, uh, it made perfect sense for them to raise in this situation. Uh, I also wanted to talk about, this came out today, and this was the Electoral College results. This is probably the biggest news, at least the biggest domestic news. Also, the news of the truck attack over in berlin i haven't read a lot of details about that so i don't think that's something i could discuss in detail uh, i also would need to do more research about this this assassination of the russian ambassador to turkey so maybe that's a topic for a for a future episode but not really something i can discuss in detail on here but i did want to discuss the electoral college people came into it Expecting that Donald Trump could lose at least a decent number of electoral votes. He needed 37, though, to, to turn away from him for the election to be thrown into the House, which was never going to happen, and it was shocking to me how many people on the left actually thought that this was a viable possibility. But I didn't expect this to happen, what actually happened. More voters, more electoral voters, actually defected from Hillary Clinton then defected from Donald Trump. Another hilarious thing is that Ron Paul actually got an electoral vote and Gary Johnson got zero electoral votes. So Ron Paul despite not being on the ticket actually outperformed Gary Johnson in this election. And I actually wrote in Ron Paul on on my ballot in North Dakota. I I couldn't bring myself to vote for anybody that was actually on the ballot. So That was certainly interesting to see. Trump's only other electoral vote that defected was uh, also in Texas. That's where Ron Paul's electoral vote came from, and that voter went to John Kasich. And then Hillary Clinton lost four in Washington State, and three of those went to Colin Powell, and one went to an Indian tribal leader. And she also lost one Hawaiian electoral vote to Bernie Sanders. So... There were more than usual, certainly faithless electors, but um, not anywhere close to the volume that would have been necessary to make this interesting. So I don't know where the the playbook takes the the left next, takes the never-Trump people next. I, I will say one thing, they are certainly persistent, and I, I wish that libertarians had the same kind of persistence in a lot of aspects that the progressives have. You know, They don't really care what the rules are, they don't really care what the restrictions are. They're going to keep trying to find some sort of loophole, some sort of way to get their way. And you do have to hand it to them. I, I don't like it being on the other side and being in opposition to them in many aspects, but I do wish that the libertarian movement had more of that where you know they don't really care what, what precedence says. They're going to, They're going to do what they need to do to try to get their way. And that's what they've done throughout this entire process. They tried to throw the whole Russian hacking issue at the wall, tried to make a huge deal out of that when no new evidence had came uh, had come to light after the election. Originally, the the CIA said that what the Russians were trying to do was undermine, their assessment was that Russians were trying to undermine our faith in the election process and then all that happened after that was some unnamed official some anonymous source from within the from within the CIA said that the evidence points to Russians trying to influence the election in favor of Donald Trump but the evidence in this is so flimsy and people are throwing this around like it's a, like it's a fact it's incredible to me but that has been the playbook so there's one anonymous official that comes out and says that this is his assessment or her assessment of, of what happened, and people run with it. And now it's the Russians hacked our election. The Russians hacked our election. But even if they did try to influence our election, first of all, there's absolutely no evidence that any votes were changed, anything like that happened. Really all that happened, and this is even assuming that the Russians were behind any of this, was that facts came to light. And I ha- I think I've talked on this podcast about how we should be a little bit concerned about you know WikiLeaks and the idea of taking people's private information and releasing it to the public. Of course, I love what they released and I and I've loved what WikiLeaks has done overall in terms of the information that they have gotten. But there is kind of a dangerous precedent there where if you take it to the extreme, I know I certainly wouldn't want my private emails. My private text messages or whatever all leaked to the public for everybody to see. So I can see how taking it to the extreme you maybe would be concerned with with what WikiLeaks does. Even though there's not really an instance where a private citizen like you or me would be the target. But you never know when you could become the target due to whatever reason where you become part of a group under fire. But all that WikiLeaks did in this election was release... Factual information to the public, information that they would not have had otherwise that helped them to make a more informed decision. But it's not like this deviated from what WikiLeaks has done previously. This fit right into what they have done over time. Uh, Julian Assange said that Russians were not the source of this information, but even if they were, does it really matter? It's facts being brought to the public's attention. And now the public being able to factor in all of all that information to the decision that they made in the voting booth. That's all that happened here. They didn't hack the election. I would be concerned if, you know, they, had, if Russians had gotten in and changed voting results or you know hacked computer systems or whatever. But there's absolutely no evidence of that happening. The only plausible source could have been that they may have been involved in these WikiLeaks, uh, email leaks and everything of, of Podesta's emails and of the of the DNC emails, all of that. But should we even be concerned or should we be happy as citizens that we were able to make a more informed decision because we had more information at our fingertips? And I think it certainly did influence a lot of people. And that was one of the factors when I talked about uh, why I thought Donald Trump would win in my pre-election episode where i said why donald trump wins i said that certainly is a factor these leaks people learning more about what the dnc has done behind closed doors uh, learning about how they basically tried to steer the nomination toward hillary clinton and away from bernie sanders Uh, all of these things certainly played into donald trump's hands and i said at the time too that i'm sure that the rnc has been guilty of similar things in the past I'm certain of it. The DNC is not unique in this at all. Uh, and maybe they would make the case that because all the leaks tended to be on the Clinton side and on on, you know, on the side of the DNC and on the Democratic Party side, that maybe there's some bias there. But that's a very different from saying that, that information on one side tended to be leaked far more than information on the other side, and saying that Russians hacked the election. Because first of all, you can't make the definitive claim that it was Russians that got that information and released it. And Assange has said straight up that it wasn't the Russians. So this is just a very loose case all around, something that's going on all over the place. I guess if you hear something enough, people start to, take it as being fact but what we do know is that the u.s has directly influenced elections around the world time and time again over the over the last half a century we've done it everywhere those are known facts those are not flimsy you know he's he said she said it may have been the u.s that possibly did this and released this information that may have influenced the voters to To vote in a certain way no it's hard and fast evidence that the u.s has directly influenced elections all over the world so who are we to freak out and now want to make russia the villain because they may have possibly released information that influenced the way that people voted but if the information is true i don't really care who releases it i would like to have as much information as possible when i make a decision That's how I operate, that's how I think a lot of people operate. So it doesn't really matter that Russians released it. You know, you could have a mass murderer that writes a tremendous treatise on some topic that nobody else has ever written one on before. Should we not read that book because a mass murderer wrote it? I don't think so, I think regardless of of the source, regardless of how evil the source is, if they contribute something that improves our knowledge as human beings, then that thing should be valued. You don't have to say that because I value this thing that this person produced or that, that this person released that I value this person and that I excuse all of the bad things that they've done. And much the same with Russia, You know, regardless of what you think about them, what you think about Russia as a country, I'm sure the older that you are too, the more likely you are to have anti-Russian sentiments due to the Cold War. Uh, but regardless of what you think about Russia, you should value this information. Even if it was them, if it was their hackers that were directly influenced by Putin, which I still find hard to believe, but even if that was the case, we should value that information that was released. And all of this anti Russian rhetoric coming from the left, it's, it's, I wasn't alive at the time. I wasn't alive during the Cold War, but it's incredible how with so little basis in fact people are throwing out all of these accusations against Russia and they seem to want us to be enemies with Russia they seem to want us to you know if not go to war at least be bitter enemies with them and this should be concerning i don't see why we should be enemies with Russia Russia should be a partner of ours in you know they should be handling those issues in the middle east maybe with the US involved in the periphery I would prefer for us to just be out of that area entirely but if we're inching toward that then a far better alternative is Russia you handle the issues in your backyard the the issues that directly affect you you handle them and we will stand on the sidelines and we want to be partners in this we don't have to be best friends Russia and the U.S. don't have to be the new U.S. and U.K. or anything like that but they're Isn't really good. There is not a good reason why the U.S. and Russia should be antagonistic toward one another. There really isn't, unless you're tracing it all the way back to the Cold War, which is so long ago now that there really shouldn't be any carryover sentiment or you know lack of sentiment between the two countries. So that's what I hope to see. I hope this anti-Russia stuff goes away, but it's not going to. Now people are calling trump a russian plant i've seen keith olberman i he's back with gq doing a show called the resistance and the picture that they have of that show of uh, the resistance if you go to keith olberman's twitter page you can see him wrapped in, Amer- in an american flag sitting on the ground but i've seen some hilarious comments about that how it looks like he's wrapped in one of the safety blankets after you get in a car accident after the emts have treated you and somebody said If if that's the face of the resistance, I'm really shaking in my boots. Uh, But Keith Olbermann's coming out making all these wild accusations. He's hysterical, calling Trump a Russian plant and that he should move to Russia and that all that you know his only goal in running for the presidency and becoming president is to serve Russian interests. All of this kind of stuff, which is just ridiculous on the face of it, and it's it's amazing how a few quotes from Trump saying he he did say that Putin was a strong leader, which whether you like or hate Putin, I think you've got to call him a strong leader. You know, saying somebody's a strong leader can have negative or positive connotations. Uh, But Russia is a kind of a big man type of culture, strong man type of culture where they tend to have leaders with, uh, with significant power. And that's how it's been over time. Different cultures are different and they're going to have different styles of government and the american culture is far different from the russian culture so the type of leadership that the american government has is going to be different from the type of leadership that the russian government has and i think a putin type probably will be at the helm of russia over the long term until until maybe their culture changes to be far more like like western europe which may or may not ever happen but uh, like him or hate him, Putin is a strong leader. Uh, and Trump said that and said some other things, that basically saying I don't want to be enemies with Russia. And now that's been extrapolated now with all of these new accusations of Russian hacking into the election that Trump loves Russia. And that's what Trump is in office to do is to serve Russian interests. Russia, by the way, A country whose GDP is less than the state of California, and we're sitting here talking about how it can influence this country of 330 million people, the largest economy in the world, and we're here obsessing over Russia. I think it's ridiculous that we're spending this much time talking about Russia. And they don't have the ability to materially impact our elections, except by releasing information through WikiLeaks, if that was even them. So I think it's that there's this much Russia talk in the media that some people really do seem to want to strike back at Russia, calling this an act of war, basically on no evidence whatsoever. It goes to show you who really is anti-war. And is Trump perfectly anti-war? No, not at all. But the reason why I think libertarians in general have seen Trump as the lesser of two evils compared to Hillary Clinton is because Hillary Clinton was foaming at the mouth for war. There have been numerous reports uh, from her time during the Obama administration that if she had her way, we would have been involved in far more conflicts overseas and that Obama actually moderated her extreme foreign policy she does fit in with this whole neoconservative crew. I know that she's nominally on the left. She's nominally a Democrat, but she is part of this neoconservative group. And you can pull a lot of Democrats and Republicans together into that group. And Trump, at least on foreign policy is better than Hillary Clinton. He said a lot fewer harmful things in foreign policy. And he's far from perfect. I want to make that clear far, far from perfect, but his foreign policy stances are one of the reasons why I think libertarians generally, if they had to choose between Trump and Clinton, they were happier with the outcome that actually happened versus if Hillary had won. Uh, I do not want to go to war with Russia and I'm concerned with how many people seem to be foaming at the mouth with punching Russia back in the mouth because they think that this is an act of war that they were trying to hack the election that terminology, hacking the election, too. I think gives some further negative connotations. When really, if you phrase what happened, even if it was Russia doing this, if you if you talk about what actually happened, and that was releasing emails, releasing leaked emails. It's far from saying that they hacked the election. Uh, I don't want to I don't want to belabor these points any further. I think there's plenty of analysis out there about what's been going on here. And um, I'm just interested to see what the never-Trump people try to throw out there next. They're probably going to protest the inauguration, but I've got to think they have some other trick up their sleeves that they're going to try to throw at the wall uh, to try to stop Trump from going into office. And I think what they're doing is counterproductive. I think what we need to be talking about now, and I would love to stand in solidarity with the progressives, with the left, with the never-Trump people, and try to figure out how can we limit executive power and limit it over the long term, not just for the Trump presidency, but for presidencies in the future. This could be a great opportunity to actually try to do something tangible in that regard because that whole wing of the populace forgot about any sort of executive restraint. Once Bush left office, once Obama came in, they stopped caring. So now they are who... (laughs) People that are in favor of restricting executive power will have to stand with. That's where we should be starting, though. Not trying to stop Trump from taking office. You're not going to stop Trump from taking office. and He's going to be legitimized as the president. You cannot do anything to make him not your president or whatever these people are really trying to do. It's not going to happen. So let's try to go through more traditional routes to actually limit executive power. That's where we need to go, and that's where we can stand in solidarity together. That's where we can hopefully form a coalition. But all the stuff about trying to stop Trump from taking office is a waste of time. Simply a waste of time. So I want to thank you for joining me again. Uh, hopefully, I'll have another one out in the next couple of days. I have a couple other topics in the queue. I I may talk about the Turkey Russia incident, maybe the the Berlin truck attack see what happens in the next couple days, uh, see if it's worthy of talking about on the show. But appreciate you listening and have a fantastic week.